Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Well, as you can tell by the voice, this is not actually Ingrid Cochran, um, but this is uh, her co-host, Matthew Portell. I'm the director of communities at Paces Connection. Um, unfortunately, Ingrid is is under the weather and is unable to uh, make this episode. But nonetheless, we are very excited um, to, to speak to today's guest. She and I, I feel like we go way back, but we really haven't known each other extremely long, but long enough to know um, each other's stories. And uh, I loved sharing um, some of the experiences that I had with her because of the book she was actually writing that that we're going to be talking about today. So Dr. Janine McConaughey, no relation to Matthew, but it is an easy way for you to remember how to say her name, is a nationally known trauma-informed author and speaker who began healing from the impact of her childhood trauma at the age of 61. Realizing that healing was possible for survivors, she authored three memoirs describing the effects of childhood trauma and the paths to healing that changed her life. Janine's recently published book, which I have with me, is Trauma in the Pews, the Impact of on Faith and Spiritual Practices, draws from her 30-year career training teachers and ministry workers at colleges and universities, as well as her lifelong involvement in the church ministry. She holds her PhD in Educational Leadership and Innovation from Colorado State University, Denver, and currently serves as the president of the board of directors for the Attachment and Trauma Network. So, Janine, how are you? Welcome to the podcast. I know this is going to be an amazing conversation because every time you and I talk, we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper in our conversation. So welcome. And we are so, I'm so excited to have you um, on the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. I'm thrilled to be here today and I'm disappointed that Ingrid couldn't be with us, but um, she needs to take care of her health and, and, uh, so, um, but I know we're going to have a great conversation because you and I have a great conversation every time. So I'm honored to be here and grateful for the opportunity. Well, thank you. And we should probably warn listeners that there's probably going to be some laughter throughout um, this episode because you and I tend to use humor as a driving way to process things, right? Um, yes. And the topic that we're talking about today is one of those we will probably be processing. So the first question, Janine, we always ask. Um, is when you first heard about the ACE study and ACEs science, um, what, what, how that impact you? What was it like to hear it for the first time? So it was interesting because I, uh, I, I, after my healing journey, one of the very first things that I did was get connected with the attachment and trauma network. And, and as a result of that, my, my work as an educator was as a math educator. And I, I realized, oh my goodness, these kids, uh, that's why they're struggling in math is because of their, the, effect, the impact of trauma. And so my daughter is also, was also a math educator. So we decided we would go co-present at the very first um, Creating Trauma Sensitive Schools Conference. And it was there that, and this was what, seven years ago now, I wanna say, and, and I, as I was listening to conversations, I kept hearing about aces, 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 aces. And, you know, it was one of those moments where you're like, oh, yeah, I know about aces, you know. Right. 
you know, while I'm Googling and figuring it out, right? Right. And so I think that's that's the interesting that's so interesting about um, the trauma informed movement is that we all are, have been in the process of learning. And so, so that was kind of my first introduction to it. I, I, I found out more about it. And then, then when I started connecting the dots between faith and trauma, then uh, I realized when I looked at the, at the, the charts that show the incremental, you know, the more aces you have, the more not predictive, not predictive, but the more likely it is that you're going to experience these difficulties in your life. And when I looked at the the little bar graphs, I went, oh, we call all those things sin. And and it was that moment that this book was actually born. And so um, I was preparing to speak at a um, theology conference in um, Idaho, Wesleyan conference. And that was the cornerstone of my presentation. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen to me? Right. But everyone was it was so amazing that that the understanding of the aces research enabled people to understand the struggles that people had in their churches and their ministries and so um so that's really how i came to it and then then i also um realized that a lot even though my trauma occurred within the context of the church so did all the positive experience positive experiences that helped me to survive my early tra- trauma. And so, th- so, but then understanding ACEs helped me to understand, it was really when I understood that's, that explains a suicide attempt <laughs> that made no sense to me. Why would I do that? Because I always wanted to live, I, but I want, and so all of that combined was kind of my introduction into the ACEs. So I include it in everything that I do. Wow. And, and and to be transparent, and I think that people who listen to this podcast kind of know because I've alluded to this, um, but the reason we connected so well when we first met was I grew up in an evangelical home. And so when we started talking about your experiences and, and you knew the denomination that I was associated with in literally my whole beginning of my life, um, we started having some candid conversations. And I don't think you realize the amount of healing that brought to me un unmanaged un um uh, unhealed trauma because when I grew up in 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 the environment of an evangelical home and I'm not saying all evangelical homes are this way but the the one I grew up in was was it was really driven by shame fear um and, and this idea that you can't make a mistake because that is what you refer to as sin right and 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 God is always watching, and and you're if you do, there's there's literally hell to pay. Um, so that conversation that you and I had before you really finished the book, it it it, it resonated with me for so long. And then um, you published this amazing book, uh, which I want to say to listeners before you talk, this is not anti-faith, anti-church. Um, this is really talking about what adjustments can be made in the faith-based church community to be even more of a healing community? Because we know that the church can serve as a healing community. If we look at the, the PCE, the, the Positive Childhood Experiences Study, and it, it talks about the, or it looked at these seven areas, which is able to talk about feelings, really important. Church can help provide that. 
uh, family stood by during hard times. I can tell you, I've experienced that as a child and as an adult where the faith-based community stood by stood by me and my family during hard times, participated in community traditions. I know, Janine, you might smile and laugh at this, but I look forward to the revival every year at my church because all my friends came from out of town. <laughs> yes, that was my yearly camp meeting when we, in fact, in fact, my publisher for this book, we actually met in those zone activities during camp meeting and and all those years ago. So that's an interesting part of this. But yes, all those traditions were so important. And uh, I think that those are really missing um, for many, many, many people. And we've just gone off the path. But you were going through the list. Yeah, but and, and really that's in the two, the, the other one that really, um, the two that, oh, they all feel honestly this way is uh, connected to the church, which is felt belonging in a high school. Um, I went to a Christian school, so that was directly correlated. But we also know that there's opportunity for church, especially in the youth group processes, to make feels make kids feel belonging. Felt supported by friends, two adults, not parents who were interested in them, and then felt safe and protected by adults in the home. So we think about those positive experiences. Wow, what an amazing uh, opportunity the faith-based community have. So tell me about this book. Tell me how you got into it, where it came from, and uh, the process of you writing it. Well, my journey really started, I wrote my first book, Brave um, Healing Childhood Trauma, was uh, my story of healing and the realization that I I had suppressed, repressed, Uh, the trauma that occurred, which began at the age of three in a home daycare situation. So um, when I, when I published that book, uh, (laughs) I mean, I'm an anomaly. I I spoke at a college and I, all these 350 students at Liberty University showed up to hear me speak. And I said, why'd you all come? (laughs) You knew I was old. Right. (laughs) And, uh, and the guy, the kid said, uh, the young man said, uh, that's why we came. People your age don't do this. They don't go out and speak about their childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. And so so when I published that book, uh, people just started messaging me, sending me emails. And a lot of them were my former students because I had taught college all those years. And they said, thank you for talking. No one ever talks about this. And this is my story, too. And it, And actually, I published a book right when the Me Too movement hit which was crazy because it it all just kind of coalesced at the same time. But I'd started noticing when they would write me, they would start out talking about their childhood trauma. And then they would say, I just have struggled so much spiritually. I just um, never felt like I could be the Christian that I wanted to be, that I could never follow Jesus like I wanted to. Like, And so I started hearing that again and again and again and again. And I thought, I, uh, this is connected. There's something connected here. So I started asking questions and I started having conversations during the pandemic. I had conversations with people all over the world, just, oh, do you want to chat? Okay, we'll get on and we'll just have a conversation. And and they started telling me their stories and I started making the connections between the two. And so I was um, I was alerted to a um, the religious trauma e-conference and I was preparing for that and I decided to do it on on um, perceived spiritual failure where these people felt like spiritual failures but in actuality they were survivors and their faith was amazing and their 
they wanted their desire to live a life of faith was often off the charts. And, and a lot of them had stories. You were like, you still, you still want to have faith after everything that happened to you. And I'm kind of like that. And, and so instead of seeing their faith as a strength, they saw it as a weakness and, um, and the churches didn't recognize it either. Um, and so, cause you don't talk about, you know, I say in the book, right. you, you go into church, you leave your story in the car. You don't bring it into church with you. And if you do, if if you happen to mention it aloud in a public setting in church, a lot of, in most most often the air will suck out of the room. Mm. And and so because people don't know what to do, people I don't think people are trying to be cruel or, but people we just haven't learned how to understand and support those who have experienced childhood, especially childhood trauma. And that's why I wrote the book. So, so what happened was when I did that, I asked my, um, that presentation there, I did it two years in a row. And the second year I asked my publisher, I was working with, Hey, would you just kind of listen to this? And when I got done, she and her partner, there was this stunned silence. And I'm like, does it need help? Do I, (laughs) do I need do I need to fix it? What What do I need to do with this before I present it? And she said, no, it's a book. That is a book you need to write. And, and I said, oh, okay. Uh, all right. And so that's where the book came from. And um, so it's kind of, kind of funny. And then I got connected with um, Richard Foster's um, celebration of discipline and so I use that as a structure to like, cause there's all sorts of people who talk about spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices. And, and so I thought, well, I, I can't talk about all of them and that's not my intent. So I'm just gonna use this as a structure. So that's what's in the center of the book, but I view them each of the disciplines through a trauma um, lens of trauma and how people struggle with them because of trauma. So, um, and that was kind of part of that presentation. So that's how I came to it. Wow. And, and you kind of broke the book down into recognizing the impact of trauma and people we serve, which, you know, I always, uh, as a, as a member of a church, as a child, I remember thinking the people who I'm taught we should be loving are the people that the church tended to push away. And so I, I found that always ironic as a kid, um, because it would be, don't talk to them or don't go over there or no, they can't come in or, there were people, I literally, I, I, I'm not joking you, there was a, um, we were leaving for a national competition and a car pulled up and there was a girl that was completely covered in blood. And I know this seems so far out, but it's it happened. Um, one of the church members was on the way to meet to the church so we could leave for this national competition. Um, and they found a girl running down the road who had just been beaten. Um, and I remember like the the fear that was driven by people. And I found it so odd that there were fear driven by this person who was in distress, a- absolute distress uh, from a church perspective. But then you moved into acknowledging the impact of trauma in spiritual practices. And I think when I read through, when I read your book, that was where it really resonated with me. So when you say that, what type of shifts do you see needing to happen in the faith-based community, first to recognize the trauma, and then secondly, uh, to acknowledge the impact of trauma on the spiritual practices. 
I think that uh, the book is a paradigm shifter is what it is. I mean, that's kind of what I do and, and, or what I hope to do. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You know, lots of times we hope to do something that didn't turn out that way. But uh, I, I think that the paradigm that I was trying was, was for people to, to not look at their own behaviors and the behaviors as others of others as the litmus test for spirituality. And so um, I have a, I, I did a presentation a few weeks ago and one of the attendees picked up a quote out of that and it's, I'm watching it go semi-viral, you know, in a small world way. And, um, and in it, I say that um, a lot of times when people are healing from trauma, that they, um, that they have to step back from serving in the church in order to heal. And a lot of times when they step back, that's seen as as loss of spirituality. They're they're you know they're losing they're losing their faith. You know they were really really involved. And the problem is is that trauma survivors because we need validation, we tend to serve way too much, way 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 too much. And so when we realize that and we start to step back so we can heal, then then um, it's seen as a spiritual problem. Because that's focusing on the behavior instead of looking underneath the behavior and finding out what's actually going on and that that actual growth. But healing from healing from trauma is not necessarily I mean, I call it a, sp a spiritual practice all in, all in itself, that healing from trauma is a spiritual practice. It mm -hmm. is it is what um, it is what drew me closer to understanding who God created me to be and who and why walk with God. And so um, I don't know, I wandered off probably. I do that. But um, I think that the focus uh, was the focus on behavior. So so a lot of times I don't read my Bible enough. I uh, I don't pray enough. I don't, um, you know, I miss church. And, and maybe I have anxiety issues from the trauma and, and it's really, really hard to go to church. Okay. Um, maybe I, uh, there are so many people who told me the pandemic was such a blessing because church went online and they, and they didn't have to walk in the door because wow. of their anxiety. So, so, so we don't, if you focus on behavior, it's the people who didn't come back, you'd say, well, they just weren't committed. You know, they didn't want when in reality, that probably isn't the case. And so, um, but it's the behaviors we look at and, and that does not give the true story of a person's desire for spirituality. Absolutely. So, and it makes me even think <clears throat> it's unbiblical, right? I mean, I, I remember as a child being, being, you know, being preached to of you cannot get to heaven by by your works alone, right? Right. Um, but you also can't not get to heaven by your. I mean, it's it's not your works, but there was such an emphasis on what you did. It was you don't do this. I wasn't told what to do necessarily. I was told what not to do. You don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. The list got Why so long. Why do I believe that? <laughs> what? Why do I believe that? That you yeah. were told me not to do? Yes. Right. And it was you. You. You don't do this. You don't yes. do that. And so the list of don't do's got so long 
but it was, you do pray, you do tithe, you do go to church, you do, it was those things, but it was all acts that I needed to do to be a better Christian in my mind as a child. And so I, I have do have another question for you. How do we get churches through a trauma-informed lens move from fear building to hope and healing centeredness, right? And move from judgment to support. Because you're right, if people were struggling and they stepped back, there was more of a judgment lens in my experience. And not all churches, I'm I'm simply speaking right. from my life experience. I'm not saying all churches. But how do we get churches to understand the impact from moving from fear to building hope and from moving from judgment into the role of support? I think that, and I, and I want to say that my my childhood, of course, I, I grew up in the 1950s and, and I was in sixties and because it was a totally different culture. Right. And, and the, the more um, restrictive church, it made sense within culture more. Okay. But then as I, but my, my dad was a pastor and he was, he was, um, he was very much a shepherd and a lot of why I survived well was that he didn't, he wasn't judgmental at all, at all. And, and he, it's like, he understood. Um, but how do we get, how do we get church? Well, so I teach, I teach a college um, master's level course in neuroscience and trauma. And uh, I taught two courses for Tabor um, college and, and um the understanding of trauma. So I watch the students as the one I'm teaching right now is current trends. And I, um, they've studied all the neuroscience background and now they're talking about how does this apply out here in the world? And we actually use um, Bruce Perry and Oprah's book, um, What Happened to You, as, as the textbook for the class. And as they go through the class, I watch... And some of them are teachers. Some of them are in the in churches, in ministry, et cetera, um, adoptive parents and so forth. I watched their understanding of the neuroscience that drives behavior turn them from judgment to compassion. And so uh, my book was heavily influenced by their discussions in class because I was in the process of writing it as we were sitting in class and having these discussions. And just seeing that change, um, you, can't, you can't change someone's perspective about behavior by just telling them that there, there has to be a really undergirding of um, what trauma, what happens inside of a person's body and the long-term effects of, and the impact of trauma to fully understand the, the behaviors that are being exhibited, okay? So, so um, I, one of the, for example, one of the practices that's always suggested in churches is journaling. And I could not journal because when I would write, my story would start to surface. And I would become so dysregulated. 
And I had to keep that down because there wasn't any opportunity to heal. I didn't know what it was. I didn't understand it was the effects of trauma. And so I couldn't, it wasn't that I didn't want to journal. I'm a writer. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense that I never journaled, but I couldn't journal because it was too dysregulating for me. And so, um, so how do we change that shift? Uh, how do we make that shift and how do we change from judgment? We have to, that's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book so that people could look really deep inside of the impact of trauma and see what individuals are experiencing underneath it. And I tell so many stories in the book to do that. And um, because I, I, the goal is to have compassion. Um, what happened to people was not their fault. Um, they're doing, for the most part, they're doing the best that they can, and they truly want to have a strong spiritual experience. But a lot of times they feel so unworthy because of the impact of trauma. Well, and I think the, the churches and the faith-based community have such an opportunity. Oh. Um, and many do. And, you know, healing doesn't happen in isolation. It doesn't happen. And one individual alone can't be responsible for their own healing, right? And I think that's the power of the faith community, that when it's recognized that trauma impacts people, because I was always taught sin was an individual choice, that that was the person's choice, and their outcomes were what they deserved, right? right. And now we have to we have to shift that lens to say, wow, what happens to people and not just individuals, we're talking on this podcast, we talk all the time about the impact of historical trauma and that intergenerational transmission of trauma. So it's not simply just me and my choices, right? It's processing all of the impact of trauma, even in the historical context, right? And maybe maybe even what trauma has been done in the church over historical context and just understand that's what was done. We have to do it better. Because we know better, you know, in the words of my Angela, we do what we know and we know better. We do. Yes. Well, and I, and I, I, I start out the book with that about the, the accumulation of trauma in our nation, the wars and the, the depression, the, you know, and, and basically, you know, we call them the silent generation, but the problem was they needed to talk. They needed to talk and they needed to heal. And instead they just pushed it down and pushed it down and pushed it down. And then we were told not to talk about feelings. So, well, and and such a great start on this thing. We have talked about how you got into the ACE study, how you got into the work, why we've got the book. And we are just starting to scratch that surface of what do we need to do moving forward in the faith-based communities? Um, and I can't wait to dig into that more. And I think we're going to go through some of the specifics of moving from behavior to looking at understanding the impact of trauma. Um, But we, unfortunately, uh, Dr. McConaughey, we have to take a break. So we will be right back um, and talk further about your amazing book, Trauma in the Pews. I look forward to it. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866 472 5791. That's 866 472 5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Well, not exactly Ingrid Cochran, but this is Matthew Portell, the co host. Um, and welcome back from the break. We, um, Dr. Janine uh, McConaughey and I were just talking about her amazing book, um, all the way from how she entered this work to where she is now with this amazing book, Trauma in the Pews. Um, so we were just getting into, right before the break, the principles, the 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 next steps for churches um, in the faith-based community on, on making a paradigm shift, right? On how do we look differently at uh, how do churches look differently? How do faith based faith based community look differently at the congregation and the theology they use uh, simply by understanding trauma? So, what are what are some of those principles um, that you wrote about in your book that can serve as that catalyst for shifting to see that what happens to people uh, impacts their uh, outcomes, both behaviorally and maybe how they serve the church itself. So I, I, as I think back over what we've talked about already, we talked about the cumulative effect of trauma, and then we talked about how it impacts individuals as they're trying to do spiritual practices, which is the second part of the book. And when I get to the third part of the book, then I talk, I start out talking about in order, and we, we uh, in, in the trauma-sensitive schools uh, 
we are always saying it, it requires a regulated teacher to have a regulated classroom, you know, and uh, and so and the same thing is true in ministries. It it is absolutely necessary for ministry leaders to do the work of healing um, in order to be effective in in helping others. And I call it spiritual co-regulation. In other words, it's it's a it's a mutual thing. And if um, one of the things that I learned, I figured out because when I started telling my story, people would get really quiet when I would start talking and, and I, and, or they would say nothing, or I would send an email explaining and they know, you know, they kind of walked away from me. And I, I realized that, that it was because of their discomfort and their inability to know what to say. And, and I think, and, and when, when this happened and I asked some people, you know, I was really sharing my story and you just kind of walked away and never checked on me or, and they said, well, it reminded me of something that happened and they would tell their story. Right. And they would say, well, it made me uncomfortable because then it brought up all those feelings of, you know, what happened to me when I was younger and I just didn't know what to say. And I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be telling my story. And, and so I think that a lot of times um, in the church, we just, we don't know what to do. We're, we're not effective because we don't know what to do. So I start the third part of the book by, first of all, saying we have to do our own work. We have to, we have to do the healing work. And, and it, it shows when you do that, it just shows you can't have a conversation with someone for more than five minutes on this deep topic and not be able to to say, oh, you've done some healing work. Wow, that's great. Okay, so I talk about that. I talk about how um, spirituality looks different. And then I say, so what does that look like in the church? And that's where your question was. But I felt like I needed to go through that that thread first. So um, so in the last chapter of the book, I present, I'm talking about trauma-responsive churches. And I, I present five principles. And... Um, and I, so I'm going to, I have my list here and I'm going to read it, but I think we should discuss each one. Absolutely. I, I, I don't want to be just go, I'm going to go read through this whole thing. Absolutely. So interrupt me, Matthew. I need you to interrupt me. Okay. So the first one was trauma responsive ministries place relationships first. Powerful. I mean, but doesn't that seem when you, when you read it, it's like, well, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So we do. Okay. So a lot of times churches will say, oh, we do. We believe in relationships. That's most one of the, that is so important. But the problem is, is that actually what's placed first in is repentance. Mm -hmm. And so I talk a lot about that in the book, that when you're when your introduction to a relationship is by telling the person that they, that they should repent um, so that, so that they can, you know, so forth. Um, then that isn't relationship. No. And so, uh, and so a lot of times there's, there's a lot of things I say in the book and they're like, well, you don't believe in this. No, I'm not saying that I don't believe in it. I'm saying it, you have to build a relationship. For because because a, a traumatized person needs to know that you actually unconditionally, completely un. Let's talk about unconditional, Matthew. Hmm. What does unconditional mean? 
Well, and, and, and I, let's get to that, but I want to go to back to, you know, what I asked you before, because it's really grounded in this. How do we move from fear to hope? We move from yes. fear to hope when we have relationships, right? Because yes. I don't have to get you to repent because you're fearful that you're going to go to hell, right? I can get you and show you the spiritual journey to what some refer to as salvation through the relationship I have with you as a support to get you there, right? And right. there's some faith-based church communities that utilize relationships so effectively where it's let me be on this journey with you. And then there's other faith-based churches that look at, this is you, your decision. And if you don't, this is the outcome. So you get to choose what you're going to do, right? And right. that isn't relationships, right? right? Now, having a potluck on Sunday and everybody sits around and talk, that's not relationships, right? Relationships are unconditional. So when I fall, you're there to dust me off and say, wow, that had to be really challenging. Right. What can I do to support? You know, and I think that that's why understanding trauma is so important because uh, when you, when you grow up in survivor mode and you have these deep neural pathways, you know, like bulldozer deep neural pathways in your brain, that take you down paths. And so a lot of time the church, a lot of time the church will say, well, why do they just keep going back to, to this? Why do they do, you know, they, they were saved, you know, they have salvation. They shouldn't be. And, and that it's a lack of understanding of what trauma does and how hard it is to break those patterns. It takes so much. And the antidote is the antidote to trauma is relationship. And you have to affirm and help and support and stand by. And it's, it isn't just, I, I'm going to be friendly to you when you walk in the church door. It is so much more than that. You know, and, and there's so many parallels, and I know you know this, to trauma-informed schools. Yes. To me, trauma-informed churches and trauma-informed schools are paralleled in so many ways. Um and just like when it's you could fake it till you make it, I've heard that a thousand times in the field of education. Well, guess what? Kids know when you're faking it. Adults, hurting adults know when you're faking it. They know when you're authentically there and holding space for them and care about them. Or if you are simply playing the role of whatever role you have. People know that. And especially people who have experienced trauma because of the way that they have developed, we've developed those survival skills, we have this heightened sense of safety, right? And mm -hmm. do I really feel safe? And I think that's what we have to continue to shift, not just in the faith-based community, not just in schools, but across our culture in our country, because fear is a driving factor for a lot of what of systems and structures, right? right? And it infiltrates itself because it is a driving factor to get people to do things. And that isn't what faith and religion and churches were designed to do. It's right. not about getting people to do what I think you should do. It's about supporting them through being whom they want to become. Yeah. And I think, so I'm looking at, and principle number two, trauma responsive ministries unconditionally receive stories. Oh. Right. Just that. Oh. Wow. That, that story 
I am so sad that happened to you. You know, no, it doesn't need advice. It doesn't need, it's just to have, and you know, honestly, the, the very first, not the first time there were, and I talk about some of those in the book where people of faith really did step in for me. But for the most part, I was, I was too afraid to ever tell my story, but um, where they, when I sat in therapy and it was unconditional, I could say absolutely anything and it was unconditionally received. And, and I think that, um, I think that's a something that, uh, I, I value so much because it taught me what that looked like to receive a story unconditionally. And, and, and don't you find it, I I found, I find it eye-opening as an adult who grew up in, in an environment where we're told we're all broken. We're told we're all sinners. We all need, but when you open up that brokenness, people don't know how to handle when you start talking about the brokenness, especially if it wasn't at your own hand that someone else, right? It, it's right. this, it's this idea of, Oh my goodness, what do I do with this? I remember a, one of my friends, uh, she wasn't my friend. She was a little bit older, but someone in the church uh, got pregnant and she was a teenager. And I still remember the chattering conversations that were happening, not with her, but about her. Yes. With the adults. And it was like, I this doesn't make sense. She had been quite shunned, right? In the midst of her experience. So it's just so interesting how the theology doesn't match the practice. And again, going back to your principles, we have to live in that space of understanding the trauma. And then secondly, being able to handle and tell those stories. Right. Really really honor. I call them sacred stories. When True. someone tells me their story, I say, this is a sacred story that I honor. It is just, it's not, it's not a, oh, well, you just need to leave that in the past. No, I, I your story is sacred and it is part of you. And we, it can, we can heal, you can heal, but but my story is part of me. It never, it's never going away. And, and I'm here because, because I figured out how to heal, right? I got help and I figured out how to heal and, and I work at it every day. And so what you just said, number three is trauma responsive ministry teaches about trauma. Okay. Um, I think that, I think that, that, the the idea of choice, is something that that um, learning about trauma helps you to understand. People do not realize that they make choices every day based on something that happened to them as children. And, and it may be subconscious. They don't know that they're doing that. So, so my example of this was that I I hated Brussels sprouts my whole entire life. I said one time I got fed Brussels sprouts and I went and took them to fed them to the ducks. 
you know, snuck out the back door with my Brussels sprouts and fed them to the ducks. And it wasn't until therapy when I realized that that I was given those Brussels sprouts after I had had an abusive situation happen to me. And I had connected the two subconsciously, did not remember what had happened to me, but hung on. And children do that all the time. I mean, that's what we do as humans is we connect things together and some of them don't belong together. And sometimes we laugh at kids because their connections are so funny. Right. But we we think that we are in complete control of our choices and we really are not. And that's really hard for the church. But that's hard for anybody. <laughs> that's hard for anybody. It's so hard for I- schools. It's hard for it's hard for anybody because. If we can't then put blame on the individual, then who do we put the blame on, right? Because blame and shame are primary factors across so many different areas and sectors, right? Including faith and education. It is that, wait a minute, if it's not their fault, then whose fault is it? Because fault has to be in this. have to find fault. Yeah. And, and, and- And I do want to insert here because I always get pushback when I say that. I do want to insert here that that there are plenty of people who are horribly abused and they do not grow up and go abuse other people. Okay, and there is an element of choice in that. There is also an element of what positive childhood experiences they had that mitigated against them living out that trauma in really damaging ways. So there's a lot more to that. But yes, there there's an element of of choice for almost everyone, especially when it comes to abusing a child. Fact. Fact. And that that was a good decision that we needed to do. And it's also what I've always said is you can't punish trauma out of anyone. Right. Punishment does not work. No. But when we have kids, we have adults that are living through these processes and and these acting out, whatever it looks like, these connections that have been made, we can teach and we can support the relationships to get people to understand this isn't the healthy way to to cope. This isn't the healthy way to process, right? But shaming or blaming certainly isn't going to change the trajectory of that, that person's experience, especially if they're managing unhealed trauma. But we do know that those relationships, right? and help and guidance and support and listening to those conversations can serve as the catalyst for healing, right? Which is why yeah. I continue to hear you say, it's not about the behavior, it's about the relationship. And, and yeah. faith-based community, I believe, greater than just about anyone, has the largest opportunity to be in that space and provide healing. And I think that one of the most important things that the church needs to learn is how to do repair. Okay, so so we don't always get it right. We I I do I do several posts a year about how to make an apology. You know, I mean we we, we aren't very good at it, and and uh, you know as all of the all the scandals in the church, we do not repair well. We tend to stand up for the perpetrator and and not support the victim, and so um, and. But, you know, every child, part of what builds resilience is the fact that the parent isn't always there to meet their needs. They can't be there every minute. The The book, um, um, Llama Llama Red Pajama, Mama, I, I always get the title messed up. 
And, but it's a beautiful picture of the mother can't be there for the, I taught children's literature for 33 years. I knew a book had to come in here somewhere. Okay. So, but it's a beautiful picture. The mother can't be there. And the little boy actually is trying to calm himself and do all of these things, but eventually, eventually he loses it. And then the mother comes in and, and she says, I can't always be here, but, but it's not because I don't want to be. And, and there's this beautiful moment of repair. And there's churches, we have to learn how to do repair. We have to figure out how when, when, when things go wrong, that we can just own our own mistake or we can own our inability to do what needed to be done in that moment and that we can go and have actual repair take place. It would transform the church, actually. It, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's where healing occurs, especially for those of us who have experienced those traumatic experiences, maybe through faith. It's just yeah. having a conversation of saying, you know what, maybe we didn't handle that situation well, or maybe I did make a mistake, or that's, as a father, I do the same thing, right? right. And having this conversation, especially when we're talking about kids and, and the role that, that faith played, it made me go back to the episode that we had here with Dr. Melissa Merrick, who was from Prevent Child Abuse Americas, and how that as a culture, the U.S. culture has had a tolerance for child abuse. And by I mean by that, by children should be seen and not heard. Children mm -hmm. should do what they're told, right? And in that episode, it made me go back to my childhood and think that's what I felt like as a part of a church. I didn't have voice. I wasn't allowed to speak up. I wasn't allowed to talk. I wasn't allowed to have an opinion. I was to be seen and not heard. And when I was heard, I was told things like, that's the devil when I had questions. When that it's so I think there's so much of what you're saying that with just little tweaks of listening, right? Seeking mm -hmm. first to understand, then to be understood, especially with our kids in faith and church, listening to them and being able to open it up and hold space when they're struggling, when they don't understand, when they don't know, is such a part of that healing process that can happen early on as opposed to waiting until they are adults and, and then going back and going, wow. Yeah, and I think that, um, that the idea that you're born with a sin nature and that yeah. everything that every time you're dysregulated, that's because of sin is just mm. one of the worst teachings ever. Oh. And uh, and I'm always recommending Mona Delahook's books because she does such a beautiful job of of explaining. Um, also, um, my friend Diane Prairie, she does this the reset process, and both of those two combine do the the most beautiful example of this behavior is out of dysregulation. The child is simply overwhelmed. And they're and they're acting out in behaviors and behavior is a clue. It is information that helps you to know that something is going on in internally in that child that needs help. And I'm so you know, there were so many and I'm sure you grew up with this where you had the I don't know, the where there were different colors and you're black inside and we had all of the um, the the. Uh, I don't want to say the word experiments. What were they? I can't think of the word, but where you pour yeah. something into it and then, and, and all of a sudden the, the blackness is gone because all of that where, where we made um, the darkness inside and for traumatized 
kids who have already experienced trauma, they feel dark inside, but it's only it's because what was done to them, not. So I really like, because your perspective is um, many, many people who follow me and um, talk to me and share their stories come out of childhood churches much like yours. And I they were well-meaning people. Mm-hmm. We we thought they thought um, I taught children's literature. I said that once, but the Victorian stories, one of their purposes of the of not the Victorian, the Puritan story was to terrify the child into piety. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the description of the book <laughs> to terrify children into piety and that and we are reaping all of all of those children who the rapture did were you afraid you're gonna miss it absolutely yeah i swear i remember cloud formations in the sky and thinking this is it and i'm not going i promise you i remember it as a child during storms i'd be like this is it and i'm gonna be here my mom and dad are gonna be gone and i'm gonna be here because i had that that i wouldn't um and it's so powerful and i think too that I want to reiterate that there is so much opportunity, right? And and I've had to grapple with the intent versus the outcome or the impact that I had as an educator right. when I didn't operate in a trauma-informed way. I actually have reconciled that I hurt children's psychological well-being by the practices that I was using. Remember that conference we had at the con or that conversation we had around the table at the conference where every one of us who are working in this field, we all said, Oh, we have those moments and like, oh, I wish I had not done that. That was not very that was not appropriate. And and we all have that. And I and I'm always when I talk, I always want people to understand this is I don't I don't say this for you to feel bad about something no. that you did. I say this so that when we know better, we can do better. And and um, I I'm glad that we had that conversation right then, though, because I have so many who who want their experiences like yours to be validated. They want they don't want to feel like that, that what they, and I, you know, we kind of laugh about the, uh, how we felt as children at the, as in the rapture, but it wasn't funny. It was no. not funny when you came home and nobody was home and you thought you'd been left behind. No. It was very traumatizing for many, many people. And so, um, but we can change this. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. That's why I published the book because we can change this. We absolutely can. And I think that's exactly what we want our listeners to know um, is that get the book, Trauma in the Pews, have a conversation with your faith-based leader. If you are a faith-based leader, read it and think about what those little shifts could do in the congregation. And then, of course, you can just reach out to Dr. Janine as she could do a professional learning session for your church because I know she's got lots of time. But (laughs) Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for the conversation. I truly always appreciate it. Um, and how can people get a hold of you? There's 30 seconds or so left. So Janine.org is my website. I'm actually going to start up a, a book study in January that you can sign up for. Um, the information is at my website. I'm on um, I'm on all social media. 
Facebook, everything. So, um, but you can, if you go to my website, then you can track to everything else and subscribe, please, please subscribe. So I can get the information out to you. I don't send very many emails, but it'll help. So perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for listening. And uh, we will be back next week. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.